Did you see that coming? That I was going to toss that one to you? Uh, no, but <laughs> I just, uh, I'll take I, a stab at it. I, this I, is I the story after you. Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character and a great story. I'm Todd Mack. And I'm Joseph Dorowski. And this week we are joined by a returning special guest, John Dorowski. Hello. Hello, John. Hello, John. He's in town, so we're taking advantage of this moment for my brother to yes, be a guest I, on the podcast. Second he appearance. Is our, he well, is our Miyazaki man. And second appearance well on my way to catching up to Kirsta. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> you just, uh, <laughs> you keep running that race. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck with that. This week, as Todd mentioned, John is our Miyazaki expert, and we are going to be talking about Princess Nausicaa from Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, a Miyazaki film from 1984. It's uh, it's certainly, um, it feels like 1984. <laughs> some of the music. Some yeah. Of the music definitely feels like 1984. I'm going to try not to go back to our Hoosiers discussion about music. There's <laughs> definitely some 80s music and some 80s animation. Yeah, yeah, I love I loved it though. Um, and just so we can be clear, are, have we are we all pr- pretty much talking about the 2005 English language version released by Disney, featuring the voice talents of, of Allison Lohman, Patrick Stewart, Uma Thurman, Edward James Olmos, Chris Sarandon, Mark Hamill, and a pre crazy Shia LaBeouf? Yes, that is the version I watched. I did not go for the original Japanese nor the 1985 heavily edited. <laughs> it sounded like a, basically a new story that was called, uh, what was it? The, the Warriors of Wind. Yes, this was, 80s was an interesting period in anime where they would often re-edit for United States. Uh, what most famously was Robotech, which was actually three different anime series that an American re-edited into their own story. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, so there's there's a few different versions of this. Uh, that 1985 version that uh, apparently just really slaughtered the story. Um, like, the, the, the cover image has, like, a whole bunch of male warriors that never appear in the film standing on the front of the VHS cover that they released <laughs> for it. Um, and they're standing on the, the giant monster that appeared. Will that go in the show notes? <laughs> Uh, yeah, we can get we can get that cover image in the sh- in the show notes, and they yeah. basically edited out the main girl's all of her story <laughs> and all the all the story about uh, being in harmony with nature. Yeah, but, but we'll go well after we talk about this. You'll try and imagine what they edited out, and you'll be like, I don't know what that film must have been. And some ways, I want to go watch it just to try and see what these Americans were doing trying to turn this film into uh, something that they thought would be more palatable. Todd, how did you first come to Nausicaa? Um, well, I, I was listening to a podcast the other day called The Incomparable. I mentioned The Incomparable on this. It's a great podcast. If you like this podcast, you would love The Incomparable. And they were talking about this film. And I heard them talk for about five minutes. And I thought, I don't want to hear them talk anymore about this film. I want to go and watch this film. So I went and checked it out. And (laughs) I really tried hard to watch it. But every time that I sat down to watch it, it was very late at night. And I was super (laughs) tired. And there, there are these long uh, sequences early in the film that's just this um, this cute girl flying on this glider through the clouds, and there's music playing, and it just put me to sleep every single time. <laughs> and uh, I eventually just kind of gave up on it and turned it back in, and then um, we decided that we were going to record this. And so the day I sat down and watched it all the way through, I did not fall asleep. It's It's actually a beautiful, really good film. I really liked it. Well, my first exposure to the film was about six hours ago <laughs> in my office at work as I was doing some uh, something that I could kind of do on autopilot. I had the film up on my computer monitor and was watching it there. Uh, and I found myself being pulled away from my busy work <laughs> and watching the film more and more. Because like uh-huh. you said, it is a beautiful film. I really enjoyed it. But I had never even heard of it until you, I, it must have been right after you heard it. Uh, mentioned on the comparable use of it, we should do this film. And I kind of yes. said, well, when well, my brother's in town, it's an Izaki film, maybe we can do it then. And that was a couple months ago. But that was the first time I'd ever even heard of it, was when you, when you mentioned it then. However, I'm going to go ahead and just guess that my brother John has a different <laughs> introduction to the film Nausicaa than <laughs> today. Yes. Basically, after seeing Spirited Away, uh, I bought all Miyazaki's films as soon as they were released by Disney. And so I would have seen this back in 2005. 
Well, yeah, so a little earlier than Todd and I got to it. Uh, before we jump into trivia, I just want to remind our listeners that today's podcast is brought to you by audible.com. You can get a free audiobook download and 30 day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash protagonist. Uh, they have over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player. Okay. A uh, little bit of trivia about this film. It is an adaptation of several early chapters from Miyazaki's own manga series. Now, John, did Miyazaki do the art in that series as well? or He wrote and drew all of it. Uh, this was basically his initial pitch to do the film. He had pitched a few ideas and none were accepted. And they said, well, why don't you produce something to show us what you want to do? And so he started this manga in 1982 uh, the film was 1985, and he finished the manga in 1994. <laughs> so it, the manga actually goes in a much different direction in the end. <laughs> this uh, film covers a, a, about a third, and okay. not, not not all of the first third necessarily. It's amazing to think about anybody saying no to Miyazaki. I don't know about well, your, your storytelling chops, I don't know Mr. You Miyazaki. Could, why don't you draw <laughs> something and see if we like it? <laughs> that actually was the case because he had done one film previously to this, which was The Castle of Cagliostro, which was part of the Lupin the Third series, and apparently not very well received initially, now a classic. Um, and so, yeah, they didn't trust his storytelling chops at first. Uh, and then he made this film, and <laughs> the rest is history. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, as part of that history, um, this film was done before Studio Ghibli was a- an actual like production house, but it is considered the beginning of that studio, and it's usually included in like collections of Studio Ghibli films. You'll find this one in there. And listeners, if you're unaware, Studio Ghibli is considered a kind of uh, the Pixar of the anime world, I think, is, is for our best analog, uh, <laughs> you know, our American I, version of that. I think Pixar would think differently that they are the Studio Ghibli. Yes, of yeah, exactly. I'm just trying to give some context of how to imagine this. Basically, everything Pixar do, does, they look to Miyazaki as their inspiration. And it was the uh, John Lasseter Pixar that really spearheaded getting these English translations or uh, versions done through Disney that gave us the version that we we watch today. The name Nausicaa is named for a character from the Odyssey. Now, you might not remember this character <laughs> because, John, what, what is the story of Nausicaa in the Odyssey? So, this was uh, after Odysseus left Callisto? Cal- Calypso. Calypso. Um, and the first shore he washes up on uh, is this Phaeacian kingdom, and Nausicaa is the girl who first fi- encounters him after that, and... Then he goes and tells a story, and she kind of disappears into the Yeah, like the he, he starts to tell her his story, and then she's not there when he's done telling it, basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> yep. Where did she go? It's kind of like, uh, oh, what's the character in Taming the Shrew? There's a character that says, like, there's a framing device that opens Taming oh, the Shrew, yeah. but then it yeah. never closes the play. <laughs> like, they're left off. Like, so, someone starts telling the story, and then we end with the end of the Taming the Shrew. I'll tell you, I was in the Taming of the Shrew in high school. I mean, in uh, junior high. No, in elementary school. Say, <laughs> <laughs> Todd, you weren't in any of our junior high productions. <laughs> I was not. It was in the sixth grade. I was home. I was a home a homeschooled kid, and I begged and pleaded with my mom, "Please let me be in the sixth grade elementary school production of Taming of the Shrew." And I got in, and I was a servant. <laughs> I was a uh, a gangster in the musical adaptation of Taming of the Shrew of uh, Kiss Me Kate. I remember that. Yeah. Uh, sing a little bitty in there. Joe, could you, can you still carry a tune? I know. We're, we're, we're he couldn't carry, carry a tune then. Yeah, all right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think we covered most of this other trivia. Uh, don't forget, listeners, to take advantage of great deals from Amazon by going to protagonistpodcast.com slash deals or the easiest way to help support us. You can just go make your purchases from Amazon. You all do it. We all know you make purchases through Amazon. Just do that by going to protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon. <laughs> When you do that, uh, it takes no money out of your pocket, and Amazon just kicks a little bit our way for kind of advertising Amazon uh, through that kind of pitch right there. And so if you just go to protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon, it helps us out a little bit whenever you make those purchases. And uh, as this one's getting released in October, it'll uh, we're heading towards the Christmas season. So any of your Christmas shopping being done on you know Black Friday. <laughs> um, yes. yes, yes, please. Please use protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon. All right, a quick version of this before uh, our guest John gives us the long summary. Todd, I'm going to let you explain a quick version. (laughs) This is the story of a young girl. Her name is Nausicaa. She's a princess, and she lives in a valley of the wind where wind blows. (laughs) 
Uh, she flies around on a hang glider. Um, most of the world has been destroyed by these toxic spores that are poisonous, and they poison all the the air, and nobody can live there. There are also dangerous bugs that live in, in the forest. Okay, and by dangerous um, bugs, don't think like, you know, an annoying spider. <laughs> no. <laughs> think like They're sand not... crawler-sized... Uh, Huge, <laughs> yeah, like house, house-sized or bigger bugs. Um, and these people live kind of protected in this uh, village. And um, and then they come to be uh, at war, basically, with a couple of other groups of humans and with the bugs, and uh, adventure ensues. All right. Well, thank you. If that sounds interesting, go ahead and pause this and go get your hands on that. Uh, you can order the DVD through protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon, or your local library will probably have a copy. I don't believe it is streaming on any of the traditional streaming services at this moment, though. Did you get the reference right for the website. <laughs> oh, I know that every time. I don't know what you're talking about, John. <laughs> I've, I've never missed <laughs> mad read. I wasn't even paying attention. <laughs> no, I, I, I nailed it each time. I, uh, okay. Yeah, it's protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon, right? Yes, it is. Oh, yes, yes, I nailed it. Way to go. All, All right. right. John's going to give us the long summary. All right, so here's the spoiler-filled synopsis. We open with a masked man discovering another village consumed by the toxic jungle, a forest of fungi that produces a poisonous miasma and is inhabited by giant insects. Pause. Great use of the word miasma. Go on. <laughs> a voice that ex- voiceover that explains, <laughs> A thousand years have passed since the collapse of industrialized civilization. A toxic jungle now spreads, threatening the survival of the last of the human race. As the opening credits roll, uh, we see the History of the Collapse shown through art and images of giant warriors and the seven days of fire. We then see a young woman, Nausicaa, flying her glider over the toxic jungle. Nausicaa has a special relationship with nature and seeks to understand the jungle and the creatures that inhabit it, notably the Ohm, the giant, uh, sandcrawler-sized insects. Yes. While exploring, she comes across an Ohm shell, which is incredibly resilient and can be harvested for material. She then senses that an Ohm is upset and rushes to resolve the situation, calming the Ohm and saving the masked man, who turns out to be her mentor, Lord Yupa. Nausicaa and Yupa travel to her home in the Valley of the Wind, which is protected from the toxic jungle by a forest and a wind coming from the sea. Nausicaa's father, King Jill, has become paralyzed by the toxins. When he asks about the other kingdoms, Yupa informs Jill that they are torn by war and starvation and threatened by the toxic jungle. When King Jill asks Yupa to settle down in the valley, the wise blind woman Obaba explains that it is Yupa's destiny to search for a prophesied figure. After a thousand years of darkness, he will come, clad in blue and surrounded by fields of gold, to restore mankind's connection with the earth that was destroyed, and he will guide the people of this planet at last to a land of purity. Lord Yupa claims his desire is to learn whether man is destined to be swallowed by the toxic jungle, or if there is hope yet. That night, a Tolmekian airship crashes uh, into the valley after passing too close to the toxic jungle and being overwhelmed by bugs. The ship is carrying a Pejite princess as prisoner, who asks Nausicaa to make sure all the cargo is destroyed as her dying wish. However, a giant shell, which Yupa recognizes as a giant warrior from the Seven Days of Fire, cannot be destroyed. The next day, the Tolmekian fleet arrives as an occupying force, bringing tanks and apparently killing the king. This causes Nausicaa to fly into a rage, killing several soldiers until Yupa calms her. The Tolmekian leader, Princess Kushana, claims they have come to unify the kingdom surrounding Tolmekia, use the giant warrior to destroy the toxic jungle, and restore the land. Obaba warns that destroying the jungle will enrage the Ohm, causing them to stampede, destroying cities, and spreading the jungle. Kushana decides to head back to Pejite, accompanied by Nausicaa as a hostage, and leaving some soldiers behind to grow the giant warrior. Before they leave, Yupa discovers that Nausicaa has been investigating the jungle and that, given pure water and clean soil, the plants do not give off the miasma. Once they leave, the Tolmekians are attacked by a Pejite gunship, which destroys most of the fleet before being taken out. Nausicaa saves Kushana in her own gunship, which lands in the jungle. While she sends the others to return to the valley, Nausicaa goes to rescue the Pejite pilot, Absel, who turns out to be the twin brother of the Pejite princess she helped earlier. Nausicaa and Absel are chased by insects before falling, falling through the lowest level of the jungle. Here they discover the secret of the forest. The plants absorb the pollution in the soil, rendering it inert before petrifying and turning into sand. The insects protect the jungle during this process of renewing the earth. 
Nausicaa and Absil travel to Pegite, where they learn that the kingdom's survivors have a plan to reclaim the giant warrior and also use it to destroy the jungle, but at the cost of destroying the Valley of Wind. When Nausicaa objects, she is taken prisoner. Meanwhile, back in the valley, the crashed ship brought spores which has infected their forest. The citizens use the tools needed to burn the spores to in turn attack the Tomekians escaped to take shelter in a decaying ship, a relic from the industrialized age, by the acid lake. Aboard a Petrite ship, Absol's mother helps Nausicaa escape by disguising her in a pink Petrite dress. While Tomekians attack the Petrite ship, Nausicaa escapes with the help of the valley's gunship. At the Acid Lake, the Tolmikians prepare for a final assault on the people of the valley, though Kushana decides to wait to see if Nausicaa will return. Then the wind dies, which has never happened before. Flying as fast as she can, Nausicaa discovers the Petrite plan. Use a wounded baby Ohm as bait to enrage the Ohm into a stampede. Nausicaa rescues the baby, her dress becoming dyed blue by the Ohm blood in the process. Meanwhile, Kushana decides to use the incomplete giant warrior against the Ohm, which ultimately proved ineffective as the warrior falls apart. Nausicaa returns the baby, hoping to calm the Ohm, but it is instead trampled. Just as the Ohm are about to enter the valley, they calm. Nausicaa has apparently given her life to calm their rage. Using their feelers, the Ohm treat Nausicaa's injuries, reviving her and then raising her up, so that she uh, looks as to be walking through a field of gold while clad in blue. The Ohm return to the jungle, while the credits roll we see Nausicaa establishing peace with the Tolmikians and the Petrites, restoring the Valley of Wind, and teaching others to live in harmony with nature. Oh, very good. It's almost like well Patrick done. Stewart was, was <laughs> narrating. I wish. <laughs> I wish I had Patrick Stewart's voice. <clears throat> I was surprised when 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 the character, when uh, Prince, uh, what's his name, Lord Yupa, mm-hmm. when he talks, I was like, what? Wait, what? <laughs> It doesn't look, he doesn't look at all like Patrick Stewart. He's got no. a big bushy mustache. Yeah. <laughs> Covers his mouth. Helps with the animation costs when you have those. <laughs> yes, most, most of the men have uh, big bushy mustaches. Or masks. Or masks to cover their mouths. <laughs> yes. Or Class, masks. Classic G.I. Joe move for Cobra. The Cobra scenes are the easiest to animate. G.I. Joe. they just have conversations of heads holding still. <laughs> uh, that's funny. I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> the, the masks look like, they look like dogs. They make them look like. Like dogs, I think. So there's a, but, uh, it's a, they wear the type of gas mask with filters off to the side, and so yeah, they. I guess they could look like dogs. There's kind of a little. There's kind of a little bit of in the first the first time that we see Nausicaa and she's wearing that mask. There's something of that in um, uh, Force Awakens with Ray when we mm-hmm. see Ray and she's wearing the mask and she takes it off. And, oh, yeah, I kind of thought Miyazaki stole that too. <laughs> <laughs> what a thief! Is there nothing original? <laughs> All right, let's talk first about Nausicaa herself, that character. I was recently reading uh, a, a screenwriter named Richard Davies, and he said his best exercise to try and nail down a character is you got to list 10 attributes, and it's fine if they're com- conflicting or contradictory, because most characters have some kind of contradictory mm. attributes to them. Mm-hmm. So if we're going to try and just one to two word attributes for Nausicaa, what list would we form if we're trying to get to 10 so should we go should we like go around the horn yeah let's just go i'll go first i'm gonna put empathetic she she clearly uh has a love not just for herself and she's empathetic not just to other people but to you know all living creatures in a way that most of the other characters we see in this film are not i'll go brave yep i'll take brave (laughs) (laughs) she when she flies She's it seems like she's uh, always running into danger, and um, I mean she's not afraid to just stand face to face with a giant ohm, <laughs> so, which is pretty cool. I mean, at the very beginning they establish that she's she doesn't seem to be afraid of much of anything. So some of the the biggest instances when you said brave that came to mind, there's uh, the ship that crashes. She immediately flies up and like gets right in the way of the ship to try and warn them mm-hmm. and and help them turn in a direction where they'd be safe. And, and then immediately runs into the fire to see if she can't Yes, and when the ship does crash, she is straight into the fire. There's the, uh, is it called an ohm that, um, yeah, the ohm that pushes her into the acid lake, right? Yeah. That's yes. baby ohm. So she's wounded, and there's a baby ohm that's trying to get to water, and she knows that the, the water here is poison to it, so, and she stands in its way and actually 
gets pushed, you know, with her feet grinding in along the edge until her foot's actually in the acid and she's screaming out in pain, but she still won't let go of this ohm because she's trying to protect it. And, and then, and even before that, when she gets shot. Oh, right. Yeah. The, that sequence is a pretty, pretty powerful one. <laughs> it's pretty brave. I mean, she fly there. There are these guys. Are they, they're trying to shoot the baby ohm or they're trying to shoot. What are they trying to do? They're trying to shoot her. They're trying to keep the baby ohm on a course to drive the enraged dome towards the valley. But oh, she's, right. And, and she just flies straight at them. And the guy's like, yeah, I can't, she, I can't not, do this. I can't shoot this girl. Not just, not just fly straight at them. Standing up with her arms out, yeah, wait, and pe- like showing peace in every way. So at first she right. kind of dodges, but then they they like reset, and she knows they're really going to try and shoot. So she just makes herself a, a sitting duck, basically, and yeah. says, "If you want to kill me, you got to make that choice. <laughs> this isn't battle anymore." And then the other guy uh, shoots her, and she gets shot in the shoulder and the foot, and then that's the foot that goes into the acid lake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, oh, she's brave. When they kill her father, and she runs in and just takes care of. All those guys. Well, actually, that would be the attribute I want to talk about, uh, which is, uh, yes, she's brave when she does that, but that's also the scene of her greatest anger. Yeah. And as Joe said, sometimes these attributes contradict, and, actually, and when they contradict, they actually make for more interesting characters. And so I think uh, she's empathetic most of the time, but there's this moment of great anger that afterwards she's actually scared of herself because she mm-hmm. didn't know she could be that angry. Yeah. I mean, she's, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a great action scene when she mm-hmm. runs in there and it's this one like adolescent girl against all of these uh, tough soldiers and she handles them like pretty easily. Yeah. You know, another place where I could say that this 1985 film ripped off another work would be the, uh, is it 2004 Serenity? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the scene with River Song fighting the Reavers. Not River uh, Song. Or, River no, River Tam. Tam. I do that every time. River Tam. River uh, Tam. Fighting the Reavers. It, it is kind of like that. Uh, the adolescent girl that is just, you know, fights with both grace and fury at the same time. Yeah. 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 All right. Uh, my next term uh, to describe her is going to be certain. Um, like she is, she is convinced of her worldview, uh, about, uh, which is a controversial world, worldview, uh, about the, the need to protect these, or, or live in harmony with the plant and animal life that's all around that plant and animal life is killing them. And she, she is confident enough that she stands up in the face of physical threats. <laughs> she stands up in the face of debated points from everyone else, from her elders, uh, and, and she remains confident in, in herself. And I would say to go along with that um, is uh, she's smart and her certainty comes from the fact that she's done, she's engaged in this like scientific study, right? Mm -hmm. She has this little lab down in her basement and she's been growing plants and doing sampling of things or something very analytic uh, about the way that she works with those plants. And it's because of that, that she has the confidence then to go out and say, I'm confident that these things that we can live in harmony and that these things could be beneficial to us and not dangerous. All right, John. So she's very smart. Well, going with the contradictory nature that I mentioned before, I'll go with peace loving. Yes. Um, she desperately wants peace uh, for everyone. Uh, and I think part of her journey is this is some is coming to understand that sometimes that means fighting for peace as well. Yeah. And I, I think mine definitely is going to, go along with that. My next one is going to be self-sacrificing. Like she wants the peace for everyone to the point that she will sacrifice herself. And maybe there's some religious themes for Western audience. <laughs> that's, that's like this, that she's willing to sacrifice herself for, uh, the greater good of uh, the world around her. And doing some reading up on this, there's, uh, at least one scholar who's argued that the, uh, translation that Disney did may have emphasize some of the Judeo-Christian themes that weren't necessarily there in the original. Okay, because I read in the original they were inspired by several Buddhist uh, mm-hmm. themes uh, in doing it, but just in this process of like talking through this and thinking, there's there's some Christ there's imagery for, some... For, for, for a more Christian-oriented audience. Yeah, there, so there it, was, it, it wasn't like the Disney translators were creating this out of whole cloth. It was there to, if mm-hmm. they, to be interpreted. And certainly there's, there's plenty sure. of overlap in the idea of self-sacrificing for the greater good across you know all the religions of the world. Yes. <laughs> But right. they, well, if, I mean, if we've talked about the hero's journey, if you, if you take the hero's journey seriously and you believe that it's really a truly a universal pattern, then when a, a Japanese writer sits down to write a story, he'll follow the hero's journey. 
and he may be he may be thinking of some completely different uh source like origin story but if a judeo-christian audience then then reads that they'll read this the story of christ on top of it because they both follow the exact same pattern or story of moses which follows you know a, a similar type yeah. and pattern so yeah, yeah absolutely uh, I would say about Nausicaa that she is wise in the sense that she's she's not a one-trick pony. She deals with different uh, situations in different ways. So she deals with some uh, situations with her anger and her fury when she needs to, uh, but she also understands how to talk her way out of things. She, she can be diplomatic. Um, she understands when it's time to run away from the bugs <laughs> and when it's time to, when they can be calmed. Um, so there's something, there's a lot of wisdom in the way that she handles conflict and, and flexibility that I think is admirable. I will go with beautiful. Uh, we don't often talk about the physical attributes, uh, as part of this. And, uh, also with animation, it's very relative, but I also think that there, uh, with Nausicaa, there's certainly inner beauty that, Many of the people find attractive. Uh, you have Absel from Pegite and Kushana from Tomikia, two nations at war, but they both are fascinated by this young woman from this valley and want to know her more. And so I think there's this inner beauty that is very attractive to everyone around her. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with that. I was uh, just, uh, this week I, I, I've been doing research for a class that I'm teaching in the fall, and I came across this documentary called Why Beauty Matters. Um, and it's by Roger Scruton, who's a, a philosopher. And he talks for an hour about why <laughs> you shouldn't have to apologize for saying uh, that you think that beauty is one of her four characteristics. And there is something like really beautiful in, in her, I would say, both inside and out. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, for the last one, I'm going to just say leader. <laughs> um, she's... Uh, uh, how old would you... She's a teenager. Yeah, teenage girl that um, essentially leads peace not just between warring nations, but between the a uh, warring Earth with humanity. <laughs> um, and she does it in such a way that everyone sees that leadership within her by the end. Um, we talked some when we did Hunger Games about how uh, Katniss is remarkably competent, but she's not a planner or really a leader <laughs> in a lot of ways. And I think uh, Nasca has that same competence, but she also is seeing the bigger picture and is moving forward towards a goal. And, you know, you mentioned her, her, uh, intelligence and in doing these scientific experiments to figure out what's exactly going on with the, the plant life. And, uh, she's able to strategize how to deal with these crises that are coming at her, uh, but always with the larger end goal of establishing not just peace, but really harmony for the whole planet. Yeah. I think part of that is, you know, she's been raised a princess. She's the daughter of a king. She, and so certainly for the people of Valley, they accept her very readily as their leader once the king is dead. Right. But, uh, that, that translates to speaking to everyone else, to speaking as equals with these other princes and princesses, which is something that Katniss didn't have. She didn't have that upbringing of preparing to be a leader. Yeah, there is no there is no hesitation on her part when when it's time to take the mantle. She just mm-hmm. takes it up and moves forward. Um, I read an essay a while ago about um, it was about the Clintons and the Bushes and how it, it was uh, like a, a political writer writing about how everybody's so angry that like we're pro- you know we're probably going to have a president again that's either going to be a Clinton or a Bush. So this was you know, before this, this election cycle started and he was saying, yeah, you know, it's, it can be kind of frustrating, but also in those families, um, there is so much experience and so much training (laughs) that it kind of, it can be kind of nice to have somebody who actually knows what they're doing (laughs) in charge. And, uh, and I think we see the positive side of that in Nausicaa that, that she has been trained to be a leader. And when the time comes for her to be a leader, she just steps into that role. And it's a, 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 as you pointed out really well, John, it's a luxury that Katniss never had. Yeah. And, and it shows. I like that exercise. We have to pull that one out again, Todd. (laughs) That was good. (laughs) Well done. (laughs) Um, should we talk some about some of the larger themes of the work then now that I think we've 
any yeah. final thoughts on Oscar herself? I thought I think a lot of it will also come up with these themes because she's very much a reflection of Miyazaki himself, and so you have his typical themes that appear in his films of feminism, environmentalism, anti-war, some of the romance of flight, uh-huh. which are all embodied in her. Do you, are there any? Are there is there any negative trait? I mean, truly negative trait that we could associate with her. Besides, maybe that anger that she or shows if when you, she if you turns turn that those anger guys, to but, a temper. But see, uh, but she doesn't seem temperamental to me. No, it's she, just she moment. watches her dad. Her dad has been slaughtered by these guys. Her her nation is under attack, and she grabs a sword and she kills the guys that killed her father in defense of. And she's defending herself and her family and her country, and she does it with like really true rage that then terrifies her. But at, but at no point in the rest of the film do we see her, like, battling with her inner demons. And nor do we see that kind of self-doubt that comes out right after that scene happens. Uh, John mentioned, that, you know, mm-hmm. she cries and she's a little scared of herself. Or not just a little scared. She is scared of herself that she had that within her and that she allowed it to act and take these lives. But mm-hmm. we don't see her wrestling with either too much anger or too much self-doubt from there on out. Yeah, and Yupa comes in and kind of gives her a pep talk and then she's fine. Well, if I got a pep talk from Patrick Stewart, I think I could go do okay. anything. Can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think whatever goal he's telling me to go towards, that goal is being accomplished. Oh, yes. man. Well, I, I think going along with that. Oh, I would just wish. Hold on. He should put out an app of him just like positive reinforcement. <laughs> well God, done. You, you've got this. You are or amazing. Him and his bestie, Ian McKellen. Yeah, get Ian McKellen on there, get Morgan Freeman in there, <laughs> little James Earl Jones. Oh, man. <laughs> it's a hard task, yeah. but you are capable. <laughs> so um, I think that uh, she had to go through that anger, though, in, for, in order for her to better understand the world. Because uh, we see this anger come up later with the Ohm. And this is one of the real challenges of film and television is you can't get the internal uh, aspects of the characters across in the same way you can in novels or in comic books. And so I think by having the, that nature reflected in nature (laughs) that uh, it reinforces that message of now that she's gone through it, she can even better understand the world and how to help in this case, the Ohm overcome their rage. And there's this beautiful parallel between what she goes through at the beginning when her father is killed and what she realizes is happening to the ohm mm-hmm. later, and and it gets, so even that moment of that moment of fury when she defends her her father, uh, it it leads to it's better for her in the end. I mean, I, I don't see it as a negative characteristic. I just see it as the manifestation of a of a human emotion. Yeah, if she had in, ha- in its in its most appropriate form, right? It's the most appropriate <laughs> manifestation of that. If she were like, you know, f- throwing pots and pans around because she was mad because she didn't want to eat beans or something, it would be. I would say, you know, Nasaka, <laughs> you should really get 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 in control of your fury. But if you watch your father slaughtered and then you kill the the men that did it in a fury, and then you realize one second later, wow, I can't believe I was just capable of that, and you reflect on it, and then you move on. I don't see that as a negative characteristic. So I'm still wondering, is there any negative characteristic about Nausicaa? Well, or think, is she just positive? I think that if she hadn't learned from that situation, it would have been negative if she had kind of even just rejected the anger out of fear instead of trying to understand it. Uh, but it becomes a positive. And I think that's a real lesson that what the world sees as these negative aspects um, can be learning situations. We can become better people by going through them. I would say one possible negative that we see, I mean, I said she's a great leader and her example, like so much of that leadership is through her actions. And when people witness what she's doing and the sacrifices that she's willing to make, they, they follow her, but maybe she could be a better communicator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and it wouldn't involve so much violence and self-sacrifice <laughs> to get the point across. If she could express those ideas Logically to everyone, because I think it, especially at home, if she could explain this logically to the <laughs> right, well, but even to the other people, doesn't she often kind of get false started? Like she starts to explain and she gets shouted down, and they move on. Yeah, and I think that's all that has to do with her age too. Mm-hmm. That she's just not used to this, 
Um, but no, on the whole, I don't think there are many negative aspects to her. Character. She's really awesome. I mean, I I love her, like start to finish in this film. There's never a moment where I want to like tisk tisk at her. <laughs> you know, I mean, she really is. She really is great. Uh, Just I would like Ray in Star Wars: The Force Awakens again. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they're both so awesome. Um, I would just add maybe like self-aware to our list of of characteristics for her, right? So she she's able to process her own emotions, I think, pretty well. Mm-hmm. Now we should mention that uh, no one else in this film is really a great communicator either. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right after that scene where Nausicaa uh, beats up all the soldiers, the leader Kushana comes in and says. We really just want to talk. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I don't you, understand that at all. You need to work on your negotiating skills if this is how you want to talk. Because you just killed the leader of this country. Yes. <laughs> yeah, is that, is that as strange as it seems did, to me when John, I watch you, that? Because... You've read the, the manga, correct? Yes. Has, does that bit get is that what happens? out at all? Um, this does all happen in the manga, but Kushan is a much more complex character there where she's the... Uh, fourth in line to the throne. She has these three elder brothers who are really out to kill her, uh, using war as their weapon to kill her. And the king doesn't like her either. And so you have this very different view of her as um, someone who had a very rough upbringing. And partly she's doing what she's told, but also she's plotting on... She's a great leader herself. Her men are very loyal to her. But but is there this moment where the king dies in this way? In that in the I I know that's a specific point. Yeah. You might not remember. I, I mean, these, I believe they, so. Yeah, they raid the country. Mm-hmm. They the soldiers immediately take the castle. They run in and they kill the king. And then Nausicaa goes ballistic on well, these guys, we, kills a bunch of them. It apparently kills the king. All we know is that the king was already sick. And when they uh, cut to Nausicaa rushing in, he's dead. We don't actually see them kill him. So. It's pretty, it's pretty str- it is pretty strongly implied, but it is also open to interpretation. Yeah, I, I, I don't know how open to interpretation that was. Did he like pass in his sleep as they were lowering their swords at him? <laughs> oh, oh, we didn't get to him. Or the, or the shock got to him. We don't know. Uh, I just want to mention that there's uh, this gap. Okay, I was because I was gonna I was going to go back and ask you why you had said they apparently killed the king because in my mind they they had killed the king but it is true we never see a sword yes you well, know pass is, through uh, him with comic book theory and film theory of the gutter where or we, um, we will automatically connect these events and uh, fill in the gap ourselves and so there are things that can be implied that the director wants implied but doesn't want to state famous so, Hitchcockian style of. Mm-hmm. Sure. Making everything worse. All right. So, John, you, you ran off uh, a list of common Miyazaki themes. Have you seen all Miyazaki films that have been released in English? I have not actually watched the last okay, one. I have it. I just haven't made the time okay. to watch it. But you, so you said his classic themes that seem to just um, permeate his works. There's a love of flight, right? Is mm-hmm. that what you said? So this, we obviously have the glider. And there's yeah, lots so of this, really loving animation of... Uh, well, this one, the they, you have... A lot of times you have the romance of fight, but in this one in particular, you also have uh, it as a weapon of war. And so we have to remember that Miyazaki grew up during World War II and was alive during the bombings of Hiroshima and I, want to say, I was going to say Nagasaki, but I wasn't suddenly blanked if that was actually right. Um, and so we see actually a lot of that with the anti-war message that, yes, flight can be this great marriage, but it can also bring great destruction and this god warrior as a metaphor for the atomic bomb. This was 85 when the Cold War was heating back up uh-huh. uh, between the United States and Russia. And so you have some warnings about that. And in particular, I think the attitudes of the Tolmikins and the Pejites reflect that, where they both want to use this ancient weapon, the giant warrior, to destroy the forest. Uh, but as long as the other side doesn't do that and get like they have the same goal, but as long, but if the other side tries to do it, it's better that we die. Then, ha- then have them win. <laughs> okay. All I'd right, like so. to talk about that flight for a minute and uh-huh. and the idea of wind. And um, we discussed on the podcast before about there are some things that when you see them, you just go, okay, that's a symbol, right? So like water is nearly always symbolic of something, usually rebirth or baptism or redemption or something like that. Um, fire is often 
uh, a symbol of things, certain colors, like the color red is often used in symbolic ways. I have this notion that that we use, that Miyazaki is using wind in this film in a symbolic way. So you have her flying around on, on the wind. It's called the Valley of the Wind. Um, and the valley is protected by a wind that blows from the sea. So it blows the spores out away from from the from the village. So and the wind the dying down is a is a key moment. And when the wind yeah. dies is when the is when all of the destruction comes. So what do you think that wind is symbolic of? I'm also quickly running through the Miyazaki films I've seen, and also thinking about wind. We see like flight and wind really uh-huh. prevalent in those. So like in Totoro, my neighbor Totoro, it's wind. There is at the end, right? Then they fly Totoro at the end. Yeah, um, Spirited Away when they ride, when Chihiro rides, what's his name as the dragon? Haku. The dragon. Thank you, Ad, producer Andrew. Um, <laughs> Castle in the Sky is all about flight. Yeah. Um, Isn't there one where there's a girl that flies on a broom? Kiki's delivery service. Uh, but I don't know these well enough Castle, to say. Castle has I, I don't know these well enough to say exactly when wind is featured. Um, uh, okay does not. No. They don't use well. They don't use flight in there, I, I and I haven't seen it in so long that I don't know about wind. And then his last one is um, about the creator of the Zero, the, the Japanese yeah, plane, the fighter. Okay. fighter plane during uh, World War Two. So. so that's the wind rises. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> there might be something in there. <laughs> so, what do you think about what? What if we could say okay, wind so, is symbolic of? So we, we mentioned that when the wind goes, that's when destruction comes. Uh, we've when said the that, wind stops. Yeah. Not when it, yeah, not when it blows, when it goes away, <laughs> when it stops. <laughs> Sorry. There's a ambiguity there. Uh, Nausicaa herself is kind of the master of the wind in a way no one else yeah. is with her glider. Symbolizing her, uh, Elevated relationship status. with nature. Yeah. Her, her relationship yeah. with nature, but also I think her, I mean, I mean, we mentioned this kind of savior imagery that we can find in there, this, this, um, this god aspect of it. You know, she has powers Yupa, that others don't. Doesn't Yupa say about her at one point when she flies away and he says something about she truly is a master of the wind or she truly understands the wind or she has an uncanny understanding of the winds or something like that? Am I making I, that up? Say it like Patrick Stewart and I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, uh, if, there's a line later on when Kushan is talking to some of the villagers that she has prisoner. Uh, and she's wondering why they, uh, don't want to follow her plan to just, to burn the forest. And they sit, and unfortunately, I don't have a note in front of me. I can't send my, uh, recess mind if I did. <laughs> um, but they say something along the lines of, uh, we've learned to use fire sparingly, in, sparingly or small doses, in small doses or sparingly, um, because fire can destroy very quickly. Fire could destroy a forest in a day, turning it to ash, and it will take the wind and the water a hundred years to grow up back again. Uh, uh-huh. We prefer the way of wind and the water. Uh-huh. And so that that's a part of the larger theme of we can destroy this toxic jungle and try and reclaim the land, or we can wait uh, for it to go through its process and restore the land. Okay, so there's something about power and protection and life that seem to be in this wind, right? Yeah, I think so. But it's a it's a unique seems like a unique kind of power. And this may go into Buddhist philosophy in ways we don't understand. Yeah, that we're we're just not well versed enough to be able to really offer that commentary. Yeah, but we have brains, right? I mean, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just mean I'm also not not uh, with my brain. I'm willing to say I don't like. There could be something going on that I'm not familiar yeah, with. I'm just saying yeah. that if we're looking at it in the symbolic way, we we often turn to religious symbolism, and we don't know Buddhism well enough to <laughs> say if there is or isn't a special meaning in wind in their religion. Yeah, but I'm, I mean, I, I'm just thinking about wind. Like wind is wind can be incredibly destructive. Um, it also brings change. It can spread and, life. It spreads, you know, with with the nature theme. It spreads the mm-hmm. seeds and spores. It's the kind of um, it's a, it's a kind of power that you can't see, which is also interesting. I don't All know. Right. Real quick, there's one other Miyazaki film that we just remembered that uh, 
I've the never seen a hollow. Pig. Yeah, it's yes. a pig that flies Por- a Porco World Rosso. War II plane uh, or World War One plane uh, between, between the wars. wars. Between the wars. Okay. Yeah, but he's a pig pilot. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> that's high on my list of favorite films. I'm guessing flight and wind and you know are, are probably a, a lot more flight, not necessarily wind. Okay. But see, I think that's part of what we're getting caught up on is this: is there a specific symbolism to? To wind and not to flight. Where so much of it is actually about flight, where there's freedom, uh, freedom from gravity and the Earth, uh, the ability to travel further distances. But wind also enables, I mean, wind can enable flight. Um, Well, she has a glider. She doesn't have a powered plane. Well, the glider is powered. Oh, it is is powered. powered. It is powered, yeah. But there are also times where she turns the power off and just glides. Okay. She just glides. I think it's interesting. I mean, I've... uh, Anyway, I'm willing to say we haven't landed on the right answer, but it's an interesting thing to think about with this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but this is but this is how I mean, sometimes people will say like, oh, these professors, they just pull these things, you know, out of a hat or something like we're just making this up. But this is the kind of stuff that we think about <laughs> is you notice something and you go, huh, it seems like wind seems to be a really important uh, motif across all of Miyazaki's work. And then you sit down and you go, what is it about wind? And then you say, the thing about wind is, and then that's how you, you start to understand maybe some of what he's doing. And certainly not all of it. And he's, he's drawing from, from sources that we, none of us have uh, drawn from. And well, so I, there's obviously stuff going on that we don't understand, but we can say the thing about wind is, that it's strong and it brings change and it um it's it's an important agent in nature and you know stuff like that and then we can start to understand a little bit of what he's doing well and also these rambling conversations where we start with a question and uh we don't know what's going to be gained on this podcast i've brought around some of my favorite insights uh like the the bone episode when todd you and i were drugged and (laughs) barely functioning and we asked the question and we were not getting close to any answer and the producer andrew popped in and said hey what about this that was one of my favorite insights that we've gained on uh on the podcast so we should be scared of these questions asking these questions we don't know the answer to maybe some of uh listeners on facebook will have an answer yeah I'm but sure I, I think um, a, another idea that we can talk, touch on that goes along with this is that um, one of the major themes of this particular work seems to be man versus nature, uh, you know, that, that conflict. Mm-hmm. And it takes all sorts of different forms. So, you, you know, wind being part of that nature um, is, as we said, it, it's a benefit, but it also is blowing. Well, in the case of the Valley of the Wind, it's blowing the spores away from them, but everywhere else, it's spreading these these toxic sure. spores all over the earth. So there's a positive and a negative there. There's the relationship with the ohms where oh, everyone fears them, but then they also see them as a resource when they've died and they can harvest their mm-hmm. uh, their shells. Uh, but then Nausicaa herself has a different relationship with the ohms, and that's the one that she tries to, to spread. So I think there's a, a lot of this um, simultaneous threat but uh benefit in the way that these people are interacting with nature interesting to think about the the conflict that so there's the man versus man and then man versus nature or i guess we could say like human versus human and human versus nature i think we've established that nausicaa understands that sometimes she has to fight against other humans in order to you know like cause some bloodshed to to stop further bloodshed or something for the greater good we, yeah yeah for the greater good do we ever see her arm nature in any way she doesn't ever kill a bug does she, she saves lots of them <laughs> yes she has a dream where she saves one of them well that was memory that was a memory okay that's right but we don't but we don't ever see her hurt 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 a bug no uh, we see her harvesting like she's the one that finds the shell that's of the dead Ooh. Right. Yeah, oh. she's she's harvesting a dead ohm, but she doesn't well, no, even it, when those it had outgrown its shell, outgrown its shell, so it's left so, behind a shell. Yeah, so okay. it's like so that thing was huge. Do we ever see that one? Yeah, that's the one that attacks okay. Yupa right after. Oh right, right. Um, so I think with this uh, man versus nature, I had a note to bring this uh, theory up because we love theory on this show. <laughs> so this is a object oriented ontology. Or a triple O. <laughs> and this is a school of thought that rejects the privileging of human existence over the existence of non-human objects. So most of humanity will view the world as a hierarchy 
with man on top and being master of everything beneath. And a lot of these characters, Kushana and the Pedrites, uh, kind of want to reestablish that model, not realizing that that's probably what caused the destruction a thousand years ago and all the pollution that the, the forest is trying to purify is was originally caused by man uh, with their attitude of dominance, whereas Nausicaa has this uh, perspective where everything is more level, that there's not a hierarchy, but everyone should be, everything should be created yeah. or treated equally, not just insects, but even plants uh, all have this role in the world that they need to fulfill, uh, in particular in order to restore it to its paradisical state. To, is, it, to, is it Boober that talks about the I-it I, relationships versus I-thou relationships? I think uh, so. That's the one you've read more than me. You've mentioned it a couple times on the podcast. Yeah, but I, she seems to have an I-thou relationship with yeah. like, everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she uh, sees the insects as equally important as the people of her village. Right. Um, and that's what brings about the harmony that the world was lacking. Yeah, and... Th- I think that's also part of what makes her an interesting character is there's a great risk in doing that, at least from our perspective, because uh, so much of how we develop identity is that uh, I, it, where we other everything else and project negative aspects onto it in order to identify ourselves. And so by opening, by Nasca opening herself up to these others, uh, she risks her own identity, in a sense. Yeah, well, she risks her own life, <laughs> uh, literally. But yes. I, but like in the in the more abstract, she's definitely risking her identity. I see that as well. I, sorry, I'm just I'm like trying to process this because like on the uh, there's there's this thought experiment that um, there's a form of Buddhism called Meta, like M E T A, I think it's spelled. I think we've talked about this at some point in our two years of podcasting. But. Yeah, so the idea is um, that you focus your meditation on on loving kindness and developing uh, feelings of loving kindness for uh, for your your best friends and then people you, to whom you you have neutral feelings and then your worst enemies. And then the final, like the big question, is um, you're walking through the forest and a band of robbers comes upon you. And you're with your best friend, somebody to whom you feel neutral, and your worst enemy. And the robbers say, we're going to kill one of you. And they choose you to decide who dies. And then they say, who, who do you pick to die? And I think a lot of people in, in the West, it, they have grown up in like a, with a Judeo-Christian framework, would say, well, the the a truly enlightened person would say, kill me, right? Because, because it's self-sacrificing and that that's the most noble thing to do in that case would be to kill your, to, to have yourself killed. If you're a really shallow person, then you would say, you know, kill my, kill my worst enemy. Um, but the, the right answer according to this philosophy is that there is no answer that you can't, you can't give that robber an answer because you value your own life just as much as you value the life of your worst enemy or your best friend. And that there that it's it's an literally an impossible proposition that you cannot choose, and I think that that's uh, it's, it's kind of what this the triple O this object oriented ontology is getting at. But man, in practice, like, <laughs> right? Like the guy standing there, and you say, "Well, I can't choose." Like not choosing is often choosing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and so there. As much as I hate to say it, like it seems like sometimes practicality trumps philosophy, and you actually do have to make a choice, right? Like mm-hmm. we have to have a place to live, and in <laughs> order for me to have a place to live, I'm gonna have to dig a hole in the ground and build a house. And that's gonna kill some grass, <laughs> and that will kill some grass. <laughs> and displace and like, some insects. <laughs> I'm sorry, grass, but if I if I value your life exactly the same as I value mine, then I will die. <laughs> And so I'm going to go ahead and dig a hole in the ground. And so anyway, I think the beauty of storytelling is you can, you can frame this world to a point where like the ultimate answer is valuing all the life. And that's what allows all life to be preserved. Um, But like you said, the, you know, the practicality doesn't align as neatly as a story can be put together. (laughs) 
Um, and, and if if we have a problem as a society, it's not that we value life too much. <laughs> yeah. right yeah. like all of us could do with with watching nausicaa a few dozen times and really letting this this argument like sink deep inside of us uh to the point where we think twice before we destroy anything even to build a hole in the ground or and sometimes the answer is build a hole in the ground I, you should at least just, think about it and not just think twice before you take an action but just think twice <laughs> about your relationship with the world, be it other people that, uh, you know, uh, other warring nations, be it um, people that you just don't interact with much so you don't give them much thought, uh, or be it your relationship with nature. Like, give all of that a deeper thought. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think th- if that's what comes out of Nausicaa, more people should be watching Nausicaa. Yeah. I mean, I I, I hear arguments about things like, Oh, we need to build this highway. And people on the left are like, we are not going to build the highway because it runs through, a, it might run through a section of wetlands that would put in danger, you know, like a frog or something. And so we're just not going to build it. It's not going to happen because we don't kill frogs. That's, that's not who we are as human beings. And pe- people on the right are like, um, hello, <laughs> like we need to build this highway because it's important for our livelihood. Like our, our families depend on our ability to get from point A to point B and we have to build a highway at some point and something's going to die. And I just wonder how much each of those people are really thinking things through, or if it's just a knee jerk reaction to, well, like I'm conservative. And so I don't care about wildlife, which I know is not the case or, you know, I'm liberal. And so I don't care about humans, which I also don't think is the case. Uh, Uh, it reminds me of a scene from the West Wing on, on their big block of cheese episodes with the, the uh, wolf researchers wanting to build a highway just for wolves they, to migrate. Yes, that was going to cut across ranch land and yeah, all these other and places. The, uh, at the end, President Bartlett says, we can build that and build better schools. We can do both things. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so yeah, it's not, but, not that we have to choose one or the other. We can do this all. Yeah, we can try to protect the wolves did. and we can also fund education. Yeah. <laughs> we can take that second thought. Yeah. Like I want what, what I, what I hope happens and I don't get this impression from the media and, and I know that the media don't portray politicians always in the best light, (laughs) but what I hope happens is that people both on the right and the left are actually thinking this all the way through, right? Like that they have internalized this kind of argument and that they value life and that their decisions are come around after they've thought it all the way through. And, and you know, as as a, as a human being, that's what I hope out of myself, and I and I certainly hope that we get it out of you know people that we've chosen to lead us. So I don't know. All right, any light thoughts to <laughs> to end this discussion on? I feel like we've we've kind of hit the theory lead balloon sometimes. Well, but it is. I mean, it is Miyazaki, and and it's one of the things about Miyazaki is that he creates. A, a beautiful, delightful story with, you know, awesome 1980s music <laughs> and her hair. Like, I, I will I say, mean, I actually do like the music. This is the first collaboration with Joe Hishashi, uh, who then collaborated with all of Miyazaki's films. There are those moments of 80s music, but there are also some great themes. Yeah. And well, and also, like, we, I said we, we kind of hit a lead balloon of, of talking <laughs> about theory and some of these deep, heady topics, which are there in the film, but there's also just uh, a joy and euphoria in some of the, the way some of these things are animated, particularly the flight scenes. Like it's just yeah. a pleasure to watch that. It, it's artistry. Um, and Don't so put your right to sleep. If you're, if you're sleepy, <laughs> there, there can be heavy themes <laughs> that are presented beautifully. Uh, and this is one of those cases. Yeah. It, it's, it's totally delightful. It doesn't feel heavy when you're, when you're watching it. It's only <laughs> afterwards that you sit down and go, huh? There was some, there's some deep stuff going on in that film. Producer Andrew wants to interject something. Yeah, I, if you wanted lighter topics, I was going to say the glider's really cool. And, <laughs> and like, it's worth watching just because that glider's really cool. And I don't know what it is about it, but I remember very distinctly a really cool sequence where she's, like, taking a sample of the shell, mm-hmm. and she has to, like, burn it with gunpowder and then cut it with uh-huh. her ceramic knife. And then she sits under it while the spores are being blown all around. Yeah. It's like snowfall. Yeah. Right? yeah, and it's like, it's it's a cool sequence. Yeah. Okay, one other, one other point that I, I had mentioned this to 
John, before we started recording it, and he rejected this, but Todd, what do you think? Did uh, Pokemon steal Pikachu from <laughs> from Nausicaa? Because she has this little yellow creature, Fox. fox-like creature, that hangs out on her shoulder quite a bit in the film. Uh, I, it's, I, I don't know if they, st- if they stole Pikachu from that, but I'll tell you what they did steal the, the is the, um, looks, the ostrich horses and the idea of like this mishmash of animals. It's totally ripped in um, Avatar The Last Airbender. Like, all those animals in Avatar The Last Airbender, they seem like they came out of this world from Nausicaa. Don't you think? I can give you that. Because isn't can... he called it, he, the little guy's called a fox squirrel. And... I can't remember if it's a fox squirrel or a squirrel fox. It's a Pikachu. <laughs> <laughs> I, will, I will grant you that the Pokemon may have come from this. I will not grant you that the Tito is a uh, Pikachu. It's a yellow creature with little... Blackish brownish stripes it's on or, it. It's orange brown uh, with big green eyes. Every time I saw it, I thought Pikachu. But I am not super well versed in Pokemon. There's a different. There is a fox Pokemon that it can remind you of. Yeah, I, I did not think Pokemon, but yeah, I totally the, thought Avatar: The Last Airbender. I can I can see that as well. I can see that actually Avatar in general was probably inspired by several Miyazaki works. Yeah. To be part of the zeitgeist, have you done any Pokemon Go, Todd? No. <laughs> no, and that, and I'm sorry. I said that in a. I said that in a really negative That's true. tone. We're reco- Listeners, we're recording this well before October. <laughs> this had to line up when John was visiting for the recording. Yeah, it's right now the very end of July, and Pokemon Go has been going strong for two weeks. <laughs> two weeks, yeah. <laughs> um, no, I haven't done it. Uh, and I feel like the I feel like the like the craze is kind of dying down at this point. In October, people are going to be like, "What? What was Pokemon Go? When was Pokemon Go big?" Either that, or they'll have a new release and it will resurge. Yeah, uh, I downloaded it. My kids used up the, the Pokeballs really fast, and I haven't gone to a Pokestop to reload. I was say, do you know how to get more? <laughs> Don't I need to go to a Pokestop? Yeah, just like walk through a park <laughs> in the city center. There'll be like five of them. Okay. When go, bees- to, go to a campus. Or with it, yeah. campus. <laughs> they're littered with them. You mean, like, the, I know there's one right above my classroom because my students have talked about it. <laughs> my classroom's in a basement, and there's a, a fountain up above, and they that's a very po- popular pokey stuff. There's probably oh, wow. two dozen. There have been Pokemon in my classroom. Okay, this has completely gone <laughs> off the rails. <laughs> All right. Uh, any final thoughts about Nausicaa, guys? I love this film. I really, really did. I loved her as a character. I love the animation. I mentioned when we talked about, oh, when we talked about X Men Apocalypse, which is a, an episode that never aired. It's, it's a lost episode because my <laughs> happy lost audio got lost. That I hate the aesthetic of the '80s in general, but I love the aesthetic of this film. I think it's awesome. I love everything. <laughs> I mean, I really loved almost everything about Ma- this film. Makes you want to reconsider things like Never Ending Story and Return to Oz. <laughs> <laughs> I love Never Ending Story. We will never. Ever. Discuss <laughs> never ending story unless a patron makes us. <laughs> we will well, not be talking about never ending story. Well, producer Andrew, Any patrons out there, five bucks a month a will challenge. get you never ending story. <laughs> oh, I loathe that film. It, it haunts me to this day. That film haunts me. All right. Uh, I agree. Uh, this film, Nausicaa, not never ending story, is beautiful <laughs> and lovely, and more people should watch it than have seen it. So if you've never seen it and you've enjoyed this discussion, just know the film is better than <laughs> our commentary about the film. Oh, Go yeah, way better. Film. John, any final thoughts? Uh, I would also recommend reading the manga, just for a completely different perspective on the story, uh, as it evolves in very different directions. You have whole civilizations that they just didn't have time to introduce into the film. And, you know, if any movie producers wanted to create a nice trilogy of films based on this, if Miyazaki's willing to get permission for that, it'd probably be a good idea. Well, I think that wraps up this episode. Thank you for joining us, and please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in iTunes, and please leave us a review. It really helps us out. Links to things we've talked about in this episode are at protagonistpodcast.com, and you can also find a list of all of our back catalog there. You can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any feedback or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We also are on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod at Todd K. Mack, at Jay Dorowski, and our producer Andrew is at Andrew underscore Dorowski, and our Facebook fan page, which is really where most of the discussion takes place and most of the comments and corrections come in, is at facebook.com slash protagonist podcast, and there are really good conversations that happen there with our listeners. We have some great listeners that are regular commenters, and we really appreciate that. 
And if you're a new listener, please feel free to drop in there and say hello. If you'd like to support the show financially, there are a few different ways you can do that. You can buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation by clicking on the support link on our homepage or just going straight to Patreon dot com slash protagonist we love our patrons they make it possible for us to be doing this almost two years in now all supporters on patreon also receive access to our special quick casts which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films or sometimes trailers and you can also go to protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon to make all of your Amazon purchases. Just a reminder, it looks just like regular Amazon, and it costs you nothing, but we get a little bit of a kickback from Amazon. And finally, don't forget to sign up for a 30-day free trial of Audible.com by going to audibletrial.com slash protagonist. Thank you again for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. Bye. There's going to be one edit there, but that's close. Oh, you were doing so well. <laughs> I know. Well, it was new. I hadn't read it yet. That, that was the new script for the outro there. <laughs> Isn't it a little bit easier to get through, though? Yes. I still sometimes regret regret that we named our podcast Protagonist Podcast. Because <laughs> something about those, uh, those words together are, is hard for me to get out.